We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. As we continue in the series on the book of Leviticus today, we come to chapters 8 and 9, and I do want to draw your attention to Leviticus 8 and 9 and encourage you to open up your Bibles to this text. And we pick up the subject of priests and the high priest in particular in chapter 8, and then the beginning of Israel's system of worship that God had revealed, we pick that up in chapter 9. And uh, this is foreign to us, as as are most of the things in the book of Leviticus, but priests and sacrifices. And yet, as we come to this text, we arrive at a doctrine of tremendous encouragement. The Christian life is difficult. Living faithfully to Jesus Jesus promised it wouldn't be easy. And throughout the New Testament, we are exhorted over and over again to endure, to persevere. And honestly, when we come and gather together with God's people week after week, we long for a word from the Lord. And I think so often what we need God to encourage us with is just keep going, keep pressing in. Remember that I'm sovereign and that I love you and I care for you. Perhaps the the strongest epistle on an exhortation to perseverance and endurance is the epistle to the Hebrews. It's 13 chapters later in our New Testament. And the author of Hebrews writes with one singular purpose, which is that we would run the race with endurance that has been marked out for us by the Lord. And he taps into several things. He he shows us the the example of those who have run before us in chapter 11, that great chapter about faith. And then He encourages us with the great cloud of witnesses at the beginning of chapter 12. And, you know, he's trying to tap into these. He he reminds us of the promised rest that God holds out for his people, the Sabbath rest, and encourages us not to give up until we've arrived at that rest. But the one thing above everything else that he does as a foundation for his argument and his exhortation to the church is he develops the doctrine of the high priesthood of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, again, I think we find that maybe a bit peculiar. In fact, I know most of us probably, when we read Hebrews, we think, what's really going on here? There's a, well, we have the privilege today of getting to dig into this in Leviticus and then coming back to it through uh, Hebrews. In his seven-volume commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews, the greatest Puritan theologian in the 17th century, probably of all time, was uh, um, Jonathan, uh, John Owen. And uh, John Owen writes this about this doctrine of the priesthood of Christ. He says that, quote, in all ages, it has been either directly opposed or variously corrupted because it contains the principal foundation of the faith and consolation of the church. Those are big words. The principal foundation of the faith and consolation of the church. My guess is most of us don't think about the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ in this way. But my hope is that after we dig into this a little bit this morning, that we will come away, at least in a small way, maybe, but I hope a real way, with hearts that are warmed to the immense encouragement and consolation and provision that we have from our God and Father through 
his son, the Lord Jesus, as our great high priest. So we'll consider first the provision of the high priest, and then second, the efficacy of the high priest, and then third, the greater provision and greater efficacy of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. So first, the provision. Look at the beginning of chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... And by the way, chapter 8 begins one of two narrative sections in the whole book of Leviticus. Everything else is just kind of instruction or law. But 8 through 10, chapters 8 through 10, are, are big, the biggest narrative section. And then we get a little bit of narrative at the end of chapter 24. But we're, we're, we're entering into narrative. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is all about provision, what we read about now in chapter 8. A provision of a high priest, Aaron, and of his supporting priests, his sons, who can serve in the holy place that God has provided in his tabernacle for himself to dwell, and who will serve there on behalf of God's people. God wants all of Israel gathered here because he wants them clear about this provision uh, at the entrance of the tabernacle. The provision of the consecration, ordination, and setting apart an anointing of Aaron and his sons. So just quickly, let's see what the details of chapter 8 are about. In, um, we first find that Aaron and his sons are washed. Moses, in this ceremony of ordination, operates as a quasi-priest, because the priests didn't yet, they weren't yet ordained, so Moses is functioning there as God's intermediary. He washes Aaron and his sons with water. Aaron is then dressed in his high priestly garments. We read about these in Exodus 28. The tabernacle and Aaron are then anointed with oil, we read about this in, in uh, Psalm 133, about the oil running down Aaron's beard. They're anointed with oil, being set apart by this, this anointing as holy to the Lord. Then the purification offering of a bull is slain for Aaron. And the ascension offering of a ram is offered. And then another ram is offered for an ordination offering, which is a, a kind of fellowship offering, because we know that because the, the priests and Aaron will eat of the meat of this offering at the end of chapter 8. And in 824, there's this unique moment, we don't find it in other places, where blood from that ordination offering of the ram is put on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of Aaron and the priests. Uh, John Owen suggests that this blood on the ear, hand, and foot signifies the readiness of the priest to listen to the will of God, his ear, and to carry it out with his hands and feet. Aaron and his sons are then sprinkled with the anointing oil and the blood of the ordination offering. Again, this only happens at least one other place that we know in Exodus 24 when Moses sprinkles blood on the people at the covenant ratification ceremony at Sinai. But they're sprinkled with the blood and anointing oil. And then we read in verse 34 that all of this is repeated, all of this ritual and sacrifice is repeated for seven days. It will take seven days to ordain you, verse 34. The sevenfold repetition throughout Leviticus means thoroughness or completeness. And what this signifies is that Aaron and his sons are being thoroughly cleansed, completely set apart, consecrated as holy to the Lord. Now, let me make just a quick, few quick observations out of the text. And then I want to ask a couple of questions as we're still on this first point about the provision here of the priests and the high priest in particular. The, the first thing to say is that the provision of the high priest is a, is a great gift of God's grace. Everything, even though it's foreign to us, everything that we read about in the book of Leviticus up to this point, and really throughout Leviticus, is a gift of the grace of God. 
who longs to dwell with his people. And the gift of the priesthood, and the high priest in particular, is a phenomenal gift given by God to his people so that they could dwell with him. And we'll see more about the mechanics of that in a moment. Second, all of this, as I've already said, happens in front of the whole congregation. God wants his people to understand the provision that he's given to them, that he might dwell with them. So he wants them all there for this ritual of ordination. And third, all of this happens, and the refrain in chapter 8 is, as the Lord commanded Moses. That refrain comes seven times, again, signifying completion. This was perfect obedience on behalf of the people of God and Moses in this account of the ordination of the high priest and his sons. It was obedience to the Lord, which signifies that when we come to worship God, we must come to worship him in accordance with what he has revealed about how he is to be worshiped. So seven-time repetition, God is to be worshipped and approached according to his design. So let's think about the provision of the high priest. Why this provision? And this will, this will help us, I hope. Let's remember the context. We're at Sinai. God's presence has filled the tabernacle. We've returned to Eden where the presence of God dwells among his people. But the question that looms large over the people of God in this moment is how can a, sin, how can a, a holy God dwell among a sinful people? And the premise of that question is something we've looked at before in the series, but we need to be reminded of it again because it doesn't strike us naturally. It is that holiness destroys sin and impurity. Holiness is dangerous for sinners and stiff-necked people like Israel and like us. We all know that if we take a piece of newspaper and crumple it up, and throw it into a fire, that it will be consumed and burnt up. It doesn't stand a chance against the fire. Well, in many ways, we are the crumpled pieces of newspaper, and God is the consuming fire. And for us to bring one, in prox to, to be proximate with the other, is to put the one in great danger. And so that then explains the provision of the high priest. The high priest is essentially a buffer zone and all the priests who support his work, a buffer zone between the holy Lord of glory and his sinful, stiff-necked people. Now think about, you know, at a, at a campground. Many of you, I'm sure, have gone camping and you, you, you have a campfire and there's a, a ring of stones around the fire, right? That's like the buffer zone that separates two things that if they were to mix, it would create damage and danger. So the fire needs to be kept in its fireplace so that it doesn't burn up the brush or the trees outside of the fireplace. So the, the stones around the fire pit are a, a buffer zone. I've actually never, I don't really ever want to scuba dive, but let me just give this, a, so this is not a personal example. Some of you I'm sure are great at it, but you know, if you think about a person standing over the water and they, they wanna go explore the underwater habitat, the beauty and the wonder down there. Well, they can't just jump in. It'd be dangerous. It's uninhabitable underneath the surface of the water for us as human beings. They need something to be a buffer between them and the dangerous environment below that they long to get into. And so they put on a wetsuit and a mask and an oxygen tank. And these things provide a buffer between the human being and the underwater environment that the human being is going into so that the human being can be there safely. The priesthood, the high priest in particular, is God's provision of a buffer zone between his holy presence and his sinful people that he deeply loves and longs to be with and be, uh, um, to, be to dwell among. 
In fact, when we read about the camp of Israel, if you had a drone or a helicopter and you could have flown over the ancient Israelite camp as they were marching through the wilderness, they just set out just after the book of Leviticus. Um, the camp, God instructs them that the tabernacle, God's holy presence, is in the middle, the center of the camp. And then camping around the tabernacle are the Levites who are the, the, the tribe from which Aaron and his sons are drawn, the priests, but they serve, have a supporting role with the priests and Aaron as well. And Aaron and his sons, they camp as a buffer zone around the tabernacle of God. And then outside the priestly camps and the Levites camps are the camps of the tribes of Israel for a three in each direction. So they're a buffer zone. And what we read about in Numbers 1 is the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle. This is verse 53. They'll camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of Israel. It's protection. It's a buffer. It's a guard. So that's why there's this provision. God longs to dwell with his people. He's provided a holy place for himself to dwell. He's provided a system of worship and sacrifices. But central and integral to that system is a holy priesthood that would mediate between the holy presence of God and the sinful people. It's an amazing provision. So let's ask, then, as we're still thinking about this provision, what does the high priest do? The high priest represents the people to God. And two specific tasks here are ways that I want to illustrate or pull this out. The first, of course, is in offering sacrifices, officiating over and facilitating the genuine worship of the people of God. These sacrifices that make atonement for sin. We've seen atonement means both cleansing and ransom. That deal with their sin in some uh, real way that enables them to then be in the presence of God. Hebrews 5 verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Then there's a refrain in Leviticus chapter 4 on the purification offering. We see this refrain over and over again. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Of course, it's God who brings about atonement and forgiveness, but he does so through the office and mediation of the high priest. So the priest offers sacrifices and gifts that would atone and deal with sin in order that the sinful people and the holy God can actually be in communion together, which we've seen communion is the telos of the whole system of worship revealed in Leviticus. But also in representing the people to God, because the high priest is close to God, entering the holy place in the tabernacle daily, entering the holy of holies once a year annually, and we'll look at this in a few weeks in Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement, but because of the high priest's proximity and closeness to God, the high priest is uniquely positioned in a critical place to intercede for the people of Israel when they fall into sin. This regular ministry of intercession is reflected in the ongoing daily duties of the high priest of bringing an offering of incense to the incense altar in the holy place, which coincides with the daily ascension offerings that are taking place outside the tent in the courtyard of the tabernacle. This is what the priest is doing, is raising up prayers and interceding for the people of Israel. The garments of the high priest that the high priest wears actually show us this purpose as well. In, in the, on the shoulder, there are two stones, one on each shoulder, and each stone has six names of the tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes are represented on the shoulders. And on the breastplate, the breastpiece, 
There, there are three stones each, four stones, sorry, four stones each with three names of the tribes of Israel. So twice, 12 here, 12 here. The people of God are brought before the Lord. They're recalled before the Lord himself as the high priest enters into the presence of the Lord. He is there to remind the Lord of his people, to call them to mind. In number 16, when the priesthood of Aaron, the high priesthood of Aaron is challenged um, by Dathan and Abiram and in Korah's rebellion as well, God's wrath breaks out against his people for rejecting his provision. And what is it that stops the wrath of God in that moment? It's Aaron taking his, his uh, censure out into the congregation of the people and offering up an offering of incense as the high priest that assuages the wrath of God and puts an end to the plague, not before it had killed for over 14,000 of the Israelites. High priest's intercession is uniquely effective because of the proximity between the high priest himself and the Holy Lord of glory. So the high priest represents the people to God, but also the high priest represents God to the people through teaching. We read about this in, Le in Leviticus 10. Also through communicating the judgment of the Lord on situations. Um, the umim and thumim on the breastpiece of the high priest were probably some kind of lot-casting device that would discern the will of the Lord for the people, and the priest would be the one, the high priest would be the one to communicate this as well. And again, the, the close communion between God and the high priest who's the only one who goes in behind the veil once a year, enables the high priest to communicate on behalf of God to the people. So this is the provision of the high priest. Let's then turn secondly and more briefly to the efficacy, which is where we go in chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 is an amazing moment. Um, I hope you don't miss it in, in our kind of jaunt through Leviticus. But in chapter 9, now that the priests have been ordained... And the sacrifices have been revealed from God. What are we, what's left to happen? Everything's got to get, the party's got to get started. And that's what happens in chapter 9, is the high priest brings sacrifices for the first time. Purification offerings, ascension offerings, and fellowship offerings. On behalf of himself, for his own sins, and then on behalf of the people. And that's the first 20 or so verses of chapter 9 is that the, the beginning of Israel's sacrificial system of worship is starting to take place for the first time, this inaugural moment, and it's to be special and unique in many ways. And then we see the culmination of this in chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, if you want to look at them with me. We read, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the, the purification offering and the ascension offering and the fellowship offerings. Verse 23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the ascension offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Do you see what was going on? This was, this was, God's presence entered the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and do you remember what happened there? It said Moses could not enter. Then God reveals the way of worship, the way that he is to be approached. He reveals the provision of a priesthood, and he inaugurates that provision in chapter 8 in the ordination of Aaron and his sons. And then they begin the sacrificial worship. And then what happens? The presence of the Lord comes. Fire breaks out either from the Holy of Holies horizontally to the bronze altar outside in the courtyard or vertically from the cloud hovering over the tabernacle down upon the altar. But fire breaks out upon the altar and consumes the ascension offering there on the altar. And it's God's divine stamp of approval. This is, in fact, an effective method of my dwelling among you. The priests and the sacrifices that I have provided in my abundant grace for you are effective that now my presence will dwell in your very midst. 
O Israel. Aaron and his priests and his sons, these are effective measures for me to be in your presence and for you to be in my presence. And it's so amazing that Moses and Aaron, we read in verse 23, they enter into the tent of meeting. They're there in the presence of the Lord. And the efficacy of the priesthood isn't actually just about the priests or the high priests. It's not just about the efficacy of the sacrifices. The point of all of this is that God, as has been our theme for this entire series, God longs to dwell with his people. And the dwelling of God with his people brings what? It brings blessing. The presence of God brings blessing to his people. Did you catch that twice? Once in verse 22 and once in verse 23? That the role of Aaron, the high priest, in verse 22, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people. While he's still standing elevated four and a half feet above the ground is the bronze altar outside in the courtyard. He's been there offering the sacrifices. And before he comes down off of the altar, he extends his hands over the people and he blesses the people. Then Moses and Aaron go into the tent, into the tabernacle. And what do they do when they come out? They bless the people. We know something of what that blessing is about because we read about the Aaronic high priestly blessing in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. It's an invocation. It's, a, it's an intercession. It's a prayer for God to bless them, bless them and keep them. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What is the blessing for? It's the blessing of the very presence and name of God to be set upon his people, which would bring what they long for most of all. We all long for God, even if we don't know it. It is a blessing of the divine presence upon his people. And the final response of the people in verse 24 is worth noting. It says they shouted in the ESV. The NIV, I think, gets this a little better. They shouted for joy. It's rightly translated to include an element of rejoicing. There's tremendous joy. Why? Because God is present. They, they hadn't forgotten about their apostasy just a few weeks earlier when Moses was up on the mountain and they had built this golden calf under Aaron's own direction. They didn't have any place to be in the presence of the Holy Lord of glory. And yet, through their mediator, Moses and Exodus, they knew they needed the presence of God. That's what they needed more than anything else. That was the only thing that would bring blessing and distinction among all the nations of the earth, is God would be present among them. And then what happens in chapter 9? The whole system begins, and the fire comes out, and God is present. And then they're blessed by the high priest with a, a blessing that calls forth the presence of God upon the people. They're joyful. They're ecstatic in their joy at this moment. We shouldn't miss this moment. It's an incredible moment in the history of God's people. Now God is residing again safely, though he is holy and dangerous to them, safely through the mediation of the priests and the sacrifices that he has provided for the people of God. He's dwelling in their midst, and they have joy. And what's the second response? There's joy, but the second response is almost we see it as contradictory, but it's that they fell on their faces. It's a response of, of humble. We're not worthy. We don't belong in your presence. We know that. And so having seen this manifestation of the sovereign power of God with the fire that comes out on the altar, in the face of such power, what do they do? They are, yes, joyful, but they fall on their faces. Remember Peter in the boat in Luke chapter 5 when the miraculous catch of fish took place and he sees the power of Jesus and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Or John in the island of Patmos in Revelation 1 seeing a vision of the exalted Jesus in all of his radiance and glory and power. It says that I fell on my face as, as, one, as one dead. Response to the holy 
Lord of glory and to his sovereign power is one of deep humility mixed with tremendous joy. God has provided for his people, now dwelling among his people, that he might bless his people through the agency of the high priest of Aaron. So this then leads us to our third and final point, but obviously where we've been heading, because of course, this abundant provision of a high priest for Israel in Aaron, to represent them to the Lord by offering sacrifices, by interceding, to represent the Lord to them by teaching and giving judgment. This grace that God has given to his sinful people that he might dwell among them and bring his great blessing is far, far surpassed. It was only a shadow. I mean, this is beautiful, isn't it? It's only a shadow of the true substance that was to come. God intended these things long ago to be pointing toward his greater provision and the greater efficacy of that provision in the greater high priest whom we know as Jesus, who is the subject of the epistle to the Hebrews. And because Jesus is so great, so efficacious, such a tremendous provision, there are no other priests. The old priesthood has been done away, but he is the one and only and unique priest before the living God. He is a better sacrifice. He is, as we have seen, the sacrificial animal whose blood, unlike the blood of bulls and goats, we read in Hebrews 10, which cannot really cleanse sin, but his blood can atone for sin and purify our consciences that we might be holy before the Lord of glory. Those sacrifices, all that we've been reading about, they were merely, again, shadows of the true substance. They were always pointing beyond themselves. The forgiveness that even God in the Old Testament provides, we now understand, was on the basis and foundation of the one true sacrifice that would take place for all time, for all sin, at the cross of Jesus Christ. A better sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And there's this phrase that's used in Hebrews again, once for all. There was only one sacrifice that was needed, and it was the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one sacrifice that is necessary and needed, that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, as beautiful as they are, pointed toward. And there is no other sacrifice to be made. Once for all, for all sin, for all time, for all men and women and children, this sacrifice is sufficient and complete. A better sacrifice this high priest Jesus has at tremendous, by the way, cost to himself. A stronger intercession, a better intercession. Verse 25 of Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus' intercession has a better locale. The high priest in Aaron's day went into the earthly tent. Jesus has entered into the heavenly tent of which the earthly is merely a copy and a shadow. He's in a better locale making his intercession. It has a stronger frequency. The high priest can only go in uh, once a day to the, holy, to the holy place, once a year to the holy of holies and make intercession there. Jesus exists forever, lives forever, Hebrews 7, 25, to make intercession for us. His intercession never ends. He is always interceding for you and for me before the Father's throne at the Father's right hand. There is a permanence to his priestly intercession. The high priest would only intercede during his lifetime and then he would die and he'd be replaced by someone else. Jesus will never die again. 
And his high priestly ministry of intercession will go on until he returns. He is superior in relation to sin because the high priest must offer sacrifices first for himself, as we've seen in Leviticus 8 and 9. The priest must offer atoning sacrifices because they too are part of the in-Adam fleshly humanity that is stuck in sin. Jesus, not so. Jesus, morally pure and holy and perfect and sinless, able to offer himself as the living, as the, the, the true and perfect sacrifice, the sinless one. And Jesus is superior to the high priest Aaron in perfection, and the high priest ministers in his weakness and sin. Jesus, we read in Hebrews, is made perfect forever, which means that he is made perfect for his priestly office by identification with us in our sin, by going through what we have walked through, by being tempted and tried in the ways that we were tempted and tried, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. His is a stronger intercession. I hope you're beginning to see why this is the foundational doctrine in the book of Hebrews, which is encouraging the people of God to walk with it, to run the race with endurance, to, to finish the race that God has set before him. That's his representation of the people to the Lord. What about his representation of God to us? A greater revelation, of course, because no one has ever seen God, but God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He is the image of the invisible God. The, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the radiance of his glory. Jesus perfectly and wholly represents the Father to his people. What does he say to his disciples? If you have seen me, you have what? You've seen the Father. No greater representation of God to his people. And Jesus' high priestly ministry has greater efficacy. The efficacy of the high priesthood of Aaron was demonstrated when fire came out to the altar and consumed the ascension offering. The efficacy of Jesus is demonstrated when the fire of the sun is shut down to darkness at his death. And when the fire of life is born out of darkness three days later when Jesus is raised from the dead in a demonstration of the power of God that was unsurpassed to that point. And Jesus lives and reigns forever. The efficacy of his sacrifice is also demonstrated in the greater presence that he gives us access to. What happened on the day of Jesus' sacrifice in the, in the temple in Jerusalem? Do you remember? The temple was torn in two. The, the, the curtain, the veil, was torn in two. Signifying that access to the Holy Lord of Glory was now unprecedented and universal. That all would have access through the blood of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to enter into the presence of the very Holy Lord of Glory. The, the curtain's temple that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, ripped in two from top to bottom. And we have been granted access, so much so that this is mind-blowing that we are now the temple of the living God. We, collectively, are the temple of the living God. The very presence of God through the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the people of God such that we now, we ourselves, this is the, the fire that came out and consumed the offerings that day in Leviticus 9, that same fire dwells in us, represented by tongues of fire at the baptism when the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2. Jesus affords a greater presence, and of course, because of that, Jesus, in his high priestly ministry, offers a greater blessing. And Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You can't get more comprehensive than that in terms of the blessings that we've been given through the ministry of the high priest, Jesus our Lord. And this then, of course, leads to tremendous joy 
inexpressible and glorious joy, Peter will say in his first epistle. And I hope it leads as well to a great humility. That when we contemplate the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled in his presence. We are humbled by his sacrifice. We are humbled by his intercession. We are humbled by his great provision for sinners like us. Doubts can be difficult. We can walk through many trials. I don't know what's happened in your life this past week, and I don't know, all of you obviously, I don't know what we're facing in the week ahead, but I imagine for many of you here, there is a temptation to step out of the race. There's a temptation to just give up. It is hard to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus promised that it would be. But when the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to encourage us to not give up, to press on, to endure, to persevere, they pointed us to the intercessory ministry of the high priest of Jesus. John says it like this in 1 John 2, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you know that? If you've fallen into sin this week, are you living in a life of self-condemnation? Trying to make it up in some way by a certain kind of cycle of, oh, well, I'll do this instead, Lord, that you might accept me. The exhortation of the New Testament again and again is to look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the great high priest, who always lives to make intercession for us. You know, the summit of the New Testament, I think we could all agree, is Romans chapter 8. And Paul is encouraging the church in Rome to live the new life that God has given them through his son, through the son, by the spirit. He's saying, I want you to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. I want you to continue to run this race. I know it's hard. I know all creation is groaning, awaiting the, the revelation of the, the glory of the sons of God. I know that we're waiting. I know that this is in hope. And then he reminds them, that we have this advocate with the Father. He says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you know that? That even now, Jesus, your King and Savior, is inter if you are in Christ, if you've repented and, walk and are walking with him in faith, if you are in him, if you've been baptized and brought into his family, Jesus is there at the Father's right hand as your great high priest, interceding for you. Can we now understand why John Owen would call this the foundation of the faith and the consolation of the church, that we have a high priest whose ministry is ongoing at the Father's right hand, whose sacrifice is sufficient for the cleansing of all sin, and whose intercession continues to bring us before our great King? our God, our creator. This is an amazing gift, the gift of the high priest that enables us to find genuine life and blessing in the presence of the Lord. We then, in that gift, and I'll close with this, we become a royal priesthood, as Israel was supposed to be, who now in our ongoing work as the people of God in our kind of priestly ministry are mediating God to the world by the pouring out of our lives as a, as a sweet aroma in, in Christ to God. Who are offering our priestly sacrifice of praise and worship 
as we gather together as his people to lift up his honor and glory and praise. And who are bringing the world as we come into this place in our intercessions and prayers, in our burdens before the Holy Lord of glory, that his mercy might expand more and more. All of this built on the ministry of the one and only priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your encouragement for the weary and the downtrodden and the discouraged among us by this amazing reality of your provision of a priesthood to be a buffer between you, the Holy One, and us in sin. How we thank you that there is a sufficient, glorious, faithful, merciful, always living high priest who has cleansed us through his offering and who lives forever to make intercession for us. God, we know that you long for us to press on, to put one foot in front of the other, to be faithful in this journey. And Lord, you know how difficult that is for us in the little micro moments and in the macro moments, in the little sufferings and the big ones. How we pray that you would enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to be encouraged by this reality of having a high priest in the heavenly tabernacle who is there as our advocate. We worship you and we praise you for your provision. In the name of our high priest, Jesus, we pray. Amen.